Thanks, All right, thank you, everyone, um, for holding off for those last couple of minutes. Uh, we have Durga Maladi. I pronounced that correctly. Yep. Uh, from from uh, uh, from Qualcomm on and Mauricio uh, Qualcomm Investor Relations. Uh, primary topic to talk about today is is DSS. Um, this is obviously Zoom is new for all of us in this in this kind of new world. But um, just as kind of a quick heads up, if you can type questions into the Zoom webinar chat. Um, at some point, if you want to actually come online, it would not, I don't think it would show camera wise, but you can come on and provide uh, audio questions and you just, you hit something called raise hand and we can wave you in. Then you can ask questions um, directly to Durga um, from Qualcomm. So wh why don't we just start and, and with, if you can kind of run us through, there's been a lot of kind of discussion about DSS with the, with the wireless operators, right? I mean, there's some concern in terms of millimeter wave spectrum and the amount of coverage that that can initially provide until there's more software and more build out. And DSS seems to be kind of a, a stop gap um, in terms of enabling better coverage. So if you could kind of walk us through what are the, what's the, hard, what, what are the hardware and software changes necessary um, to implement this for a carrier? Okay. Actually, I want to maybe step back just a little bit, uh, uh, just continuing on uh, the rationale for DSS. The rationale for DSS is actually threefold. Uh, the first one is to uh, start enabling a nationwide footprint of 5G, uh, just because of the fact that today when a user actually buys a 5G device, you only get coverage and 5G icon pops up only in some select locations and select cities and so on and so forth. And it doesn't matter whether it is sub six or millimeter wave at that point. That's only the beginning though. That's actually, you know, that's one reason, but it's, I wouldn't call that as the most important reason. I would actually say that the most important reason for using DSS is, we want to make sure that there is nationwide coverage so that we can plant the seeds for the transition from non-standalone mode to standalone mode. The last thing that you want is if you want to make the transition from 5G non-standalone today, you never lose the 4G anchor and you're connected to 5G whenever you can. But at some point in time, if you want to do just 5G, uh, it's kind of annoying to keep going back and forth between 4G and 5G every time you go in and out of coverage. So what you want to do is make sure no matter what you have 5G coverage, and that's your standalone mode transition. And that way you remain in 5G mode. And when you see 5G new bands, whether it is sub six TDD or whether it's millimeter wave, it just gets added as another carrier. And when it's not there, it gets removed again. But you have standalone mode, you have the new core, you have the new low latency and a lot of the other services that can be built on top of it. So DSS and FTD is just an enabler to make the transition to standalone mode uh, much smoother. I think that's the way to actually think about it. Once you have that, then you have a perfect trifecta play of low band FTD, typically with DSS because there's very little pristine uh, low band FTD spectrum. So you've got to actually reuse the existing uh, channels uh, uh, using for both 4G and 5G. Uh, that's the anchor. On top of that is the 
sub-6 TDD bands, whether it's 2.6 or 3.5 gigahertz, and then millimeter wave bands even higher on top of it. So it's literally laying the foundation for the transition for standalone mode. That's the way we actually see uh, uh, the relevance of DSS, FTT DSS. So before we get to like the different spectrum bands and how that would be deployed and in what depth, um, right. again, just going back to, let's say these the initial deployments that we've seen thus far have been thin layers, I think, on low band. Maybe that's not, those are, I think, are standalone, what we've seen thus far. But I guess if we think about what Verizon, as an example, plans to launch um, soon, what, what have they had to do to their network in order to, to enable that? And, and also what needs to be in the phones, if anything, hardware or software? Okay, so let me actually give you the uh, network perspective and then the device perspective. So from a network standpoint, uh, it's reusing the existing 4G spectrum. So in the same channel card, you have the ability to say, okay, these users are 4G users. So they're completely oblivious to the fact that there might be other 5G users present over there. They actually have no clue this is happening. Mm -hmm. As far as they know, these devices are getting scheduled uh, by the network um, on some sort of a dynamic basis, no different from anyone else. The 5G devices or the 5G users, on the other hand, are aware of the fact that this band is a channel in which you have other 4G users. So they have to do some things. They have to do some bookkeeping. They have to, there are some common signals that are print, spent, sent all the time on 4G. So you're going to kind of remove those signals and make sure that you only factor in the signals that are relevant to you. That is something that the device does. That is something that the network in the channel card, someone needs to do as well. So on the network side, using the same channels, separating out the 4G and 5G users, multiplexing them together. Uh, and it's called dynamic spectrum sharing. This is not a static split wherein you have a 10 megahertz channel and I'm gonna say five megahertz is for 4G and five megahertz for 5G. It's not quite that. There are instances where the entire 10 megahertz goes to 4G and there are instances where the entire 10 megahertz goes to 5G and this can change on a millisecond basis. Uh, so that is but something but in that millisecond, let's assume that there is five megahertz uh, allocated to 5G. Even if it occurs for a millisecond, that is only being used for 5G. It's not like you're that in that same five megahertz of spectrum, there's going to be LTE traffic and 5G NR traffic at the same time. It might switch back millisecond to millisecond, but it's not simultaneous bits through the same channel, correct? Right. That is correct. But actually, the granularity is not five megahertz. The granularity goes all the way down to 180 kilohertz. I mean, it's literally that small. So you have uh, hundreds of such resource blocks that are present and each resource block unit in 4G is 180 kilohertz. So it's really a tiny sliver of the spectrum. So it's far more dynamic and at a much level, uh, lower level of granularity. And so it's very flexible in its operation in that sense. And the radios that are able to do this are the 5G capable radios that we've heard operators talking about for the past six months? Yes, so these are uh, 4G radios that need to have some kind of an upgrade that actually goes into them to make sure that this operation is allowed. So you still do what you need to do for 4G, but now you start mixing and matching 5G users on top of it. Typically, it's a software upgrade. I mean, it's not uh, something that is seen as a hardware upgrade per se. And that's what needs to be done on the network side. Uh, devices, of course, these are new devices. So obviously, you wouldn't know the specifics, but if you were to kind of um, be in the industry to guess, like, percentage of population that you think has radios with either mid-band or low-band spectrum that, that would be able to handle this with simply a software upgrade as opposed to requiring a hardware upgrade to get to 5G-capable radios? 
we have not seen any instance where uh, we see uh, hardware upgrades necessary for uh, dynamic spectrum sharing in in all instances that we are aware of so far the typical bands that people talk of for dsls range all the way from uh, 600 megahertz 700 800 megahertz uh, 1800 and 2100 uh these bands actually we have not heard of any hardware upgrades coming so far it's always so, been software so when you go back to the you were talking about the implementation when you have this dss base and then you build the let's call it the, the 2.5 or the Standalone. 3.5 on top of yeah. it what is the what is the anticipated initial deployment of dss like how much spectrum will be able to flip back and forth and is it going to be targeted in the midband spectrum that these carriers have the low band both and then part of that is not to ask five questions in one but like does carrier aggregation play into that meaning can i grab 10 from low and 20 from from mid so i can get those speeds you can just kind of walk through the deployment yeah so uh, the bands where dss is really of interest right now as i mentioned is typically in the low and the low mid bands so up to 2100 megahertz so 600 mm-hmm. 700 800 1800 and so 2100. pcs spectrum but not aws spectrum I uh, there are there is some interest in AWS as well and typically this comes under by the way AWS spectrum in the US happens to be what is known as band 1 in in Europe it's the 1900 2100 band a uh, lot of interest in that space this is the spectrum that's been used uh for the bulk of the 4G period and in some instances there is some UMTS uh, deployments as well over there but that's a hard reforming that's a different story so uh that's where most of the DSS uh, uh action is uh when we get into once you have this foundation layer now you have a combination of uh, aggregation capabilities we had actually started talking about this quite extensively about 3 4 months back when we made our announcement with our uh, next generation uh, x60 platform we actually started talking about it back in december when we said that's a platform with which we start aggregating different kinds of bands together whether it's a low and mid bands uh, sub 6 and uh, within ftd and uh, as we add tdd bands on top of that but different ways of aggregating together what this means is imagine the following today when uh, you you buy a device which is capable of operating in either in the 5g mid bands or 5g high bands so let's say you're in europe or us and you have 2.6 or 3.5 gigahertz mid band or you might have millimeter wave uh, the moment you you kind of uh, you you are close to a base station you have the coverage and your anchor happens to be lte at some point in time as you start walking away from the base station at some point in time you lose the 5g icon because you're out of that 5g coverage but actually there's a things that are a little more subtle than that it turns out that actually you can still avail yourself of the downlink from 5g it's just that you're not able to close the link on the uplink because your transmit power on the device is still the same as it used to be whereas in uh, uh, in the mid bands with 5g typically with massive mimo you have much better penetration and therefore you can go a little further if only you could close the link on the uplink so that's a little confusing to me only because when i was in chicago testing verizon's network they were using lte only for uplink and you were still seeing the 5g icon when you were getting the downlink but then when you that's moved right. away from the cell site right. the 5g icon dropped so i i was assuming at that point I had no access to either 5G or no access to the 5G downlink at that point. That's right. In fact, that's exactly what Verizon did. They actually focused on just the downlink services on millimeter wave and all the uplink was really coming on LTE. And that right. actually is the right thing to do if you really want to focus on downlink services. But when you go into standalone mode, you don't have that LTE on the uplink. What you want is a low band uplink. And that's where FTTDSS comes in. 
and that's where you actually get to close the link in, a, in an appropriate manner whether you light up another uh, uh, you know data carrier on the uplink is a different story but when you replace lte you got to have something else that takes its spot and that happens to be this 5 uh, 5g ftdd <laughs> but if you're using a dss channel on a lower band to help with the uplink um, my understanding is that you're still it's still flipping back between lge or lte lte and 5g um, so as a result you can't really switch then to a full 5G core, you're staying with this, L, this, this LTE core, thereby limiting the improvements you can get in terms of latency. Is that not ah, true? Okay, no, that's not accurate. So the okay. way it usually works is, and maybe I wasn't clear early on, what we talked about with FTDDS is this dynamic operation between 4G and 5G. If you're a 5G user, you remain on 5G. You're not going back and forth between 4G and 5G. It's just that maybe I'm a 4G user, I remain on 4G, you're a 5G user, you remain on 5G, you're connected to the 5G core, you get all that low latency and so on. I'm connected to the 4G core. It's just that the amount of spectrum that I get and in what time frame I get changes dynamically on a per millisecond basis. That being said, we both are connected to our individual cores no matter what. Right, so if I'm the 5G guy on millimeter wave, I, I roam out, I hit the DSS version of 5G NR, I can stay within that 5G core. But the reality That's is correct. that me as a user in general, at some point I'll flip to LTE and then there's still the requirement for the company to maintain some type of LTE core in the network until they can go completely yeah, 5G. It's, it's possible. You might, might not actually have to do that depending upon if the lowest band that you're using happens to be 5G uh, FTD DSS, then actually you might have instances wherein you actually run out of... Uh, uh, 4G coverage way before you run out of 5G coverage. Imagine the following. Let's say 4G is running on the PCS band and you have 5G running in the 600 megahertz band. Well, obviously, you actually will maintain 5G coverage even in sure. some instances you actually run out of 4G. So it's more about which band is, used for, is being used for DSS at that point. So how do you anticipate the initial DSS deployments? How much, because let's say the millimeter wave stays within this very kind of tight coverage rings. C-band, we're kind of a ways away from. Um, even 2.5, you know, there's going to take some time. So how much spectrum do you think initially will be um, shared, I guess is the best way to put it, between uh, LTE and, and 5G? This depends upon uh, different operators. So typically, if you take a look at uh, any of the North American operators or the European operators, they usually use uh, three to four channels together. Uh, for LTE today. In fact, LTE carrier aggregation is built Three to four, like, five megahertz downlink channels? Well, again, the, the spectrum itself can range anywhere from five megahertz to 20 megahertz. But uh -huh. usually you have sub three or four of these channels that get together. That's what LTE aggregation today is. LTE carrier aggregation is around yep. that range. You go up to seven carriers, but usually about three to four in the low bands. Uh, when, you move the, when you move to uh, DSS, it's the same channels that are moving to DSS. So every operator, and this is really a question more for the operators, they have their own plans of, okay, I'm going to start off the bat with two channels or I'm going to start off the bat with three channels. It's really up to them. And some of them are perfectly comfortable starting off the bat with just one channel. Uh, but that's the kind of a package that we are talking about. But if you, let's say you only use one channel, let's say the, the depth of that channel is whatever, five or 10 megahertz, no matter whether you're using 5G NR or LTE, the speeds that you're going to deliver to the end user when you're only flipping, like they're just, you're just not going to, I mean, there's already been press about this, right? As far as these initial, yeah. forget about DSS, the standalone where T-Mobile or AT&T are only deploying 10 megahertz paired, so five downlink, 
that the 5G speeds are slower than LTE. So if the same holds true with DSS, unless you're so, carrying- Yeah, yeah. Till, till you have a combination of mid-band along with the low band, you're not actually increasing the spectrum anyway. It doesn't matter whether you use it with 4G or whether you use it as 5G the raw arithmetic doesn't change. You're still using the same two layers or four layers of MIMO. You're using the same modulation order. So all things remaining the same, the raw arithmetic doesn't change uh, in terms of the peak data rates. The only thing that changes is that as you start heading into these, uh, you know, uh, the PCS bands or the 2.1 gigahertz band, there are more advanced capabilities that 5G is bringing to the table, which allows you to hit those peak rates more frequently than not. That means your average data rate might start creeping up a bit. But it turns out that those techniques are not quite applicable by the time you get down to the low bands, uh, below one gigahertz bands. But and why is that? Oh, that's because when, if you take a look at, uh, you know, this is basically related to what is known as massive MIMO in 5G and, and mm -hmm. how you use these large antenna patterns. Right, so you can't use but massive MIMO in the low band spectrum, basically. You cannot use massive MIMO in the below one gigahertz band. So you have what you have. It's the same number of antennas, same MIMO layers, and same modulation orders. So the, the peak rates are approximately the same between both 4G So and just 5G. to be clear, DSS, um, you can aggregate non-contiguous bands. So if I had... 5 megahertz of 600, 10 megahertz of AWS. Five, just the way, the way I do carrier aggregation today on LTE, I can do that with DSS, right? That is correct. Absolutely so correct. If I'm an operator, why wouldn't I uh, apply DSS across multiple carrier aggregated bands? Because if I don't, and I only deploy it on, let's say, one channel of 10 megahertz, then the speeds the consumer is going to have who's been marketed 5G are going to be very disappointed. So it, it, wouldn't it be, there's, why wouldn't you, only do it via carrier aggregation. So it depends upon whether you have additional spectrum in millimeter wave and uh, mid bands as well. So imagine the scenario, let's say that you don't have any 2.6 or 3.5 gigahertz and you don't have any millimeter wave. You're absolutely right. You would want to actually aggregate, basically whatever you do on LTE, you try to do exactly the same thing on 5G as well. Yep. That's a check. But what if you actually reach a point where you still have the ability of aggregating two or three carriers but on the other hand, you have this 100 megahertz of 3.5 gigahertz that you can pair along with that. Actually, you'll go with that 100 megahertz and maybe you're fine with just taking one carrier sure. of DSS and then pairing it up with that. So it's a matter of whether what's your current spectrum holding in that specific spot uh, when you take a look at mid bands and high bands as well. But if you don't right. have so that mid and high bands, you're talking you about something that's in a year or two or three that when C bands available, but millimeter wave is a little different, meaning that yeah, same concept, but maybe they don't give you the same type of coverage that hopefully 3.5 or 2.5 will, will give you. So maybe you need to aggregate yeah. more in terms of the mid-band and low-band initially than let's say a European guy who's got 3.5 ready to go and maybe just needs a thin layer and then aggregated most of the time with the 3.5. That's right. And keep in mind that... Uh you know, the C-band spectrum auction that's coming up in the U.S., I think the plans are quite aggressive at this point. It remains yep. to be seen how the auction goes through and so on, but everyone yep. recognizes that we need more mid-band spectrum. And before the C-band auction, actually, we still have the CBRS spectrum auctions that are coming up three months from now. That's another 150 megahertz there. Uh, and depending upon who gets what, and there's additional spectrum coming in there as well. But Is yeah, those who... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Now, I was just going to say that if you take a global perspective, uh, it's interesting to see that in Europe, 
when the 3.5 gigahertz band was auctioned across all the member states. Uh, everyone got anywhere from 40 megahertz to 100 megahertz. It's a pretty substantial chunk. Uh, in uh, China, in Korea, uh, and in Japan, everyone ended up getting about 100 megahertz of the mid-bands. Uh, and even Australia, actually, typically you end up seeing 100 megahertz of the mid-band. So that's a part that's, uh, you know, that's the reason why there is a there is a rush to make sure that we have our mid-band spectrum in the U.S. as well. We, we could certainly use that. Do you foresee there being any issues with using the general access licenses of, of CBRS and as in part of like a, a DSS type deployment? Well, the GA layer of CBRS spectrum has to defer to the PAL layer, which has to then defer to the actual inc- incumbents in itself. I think there is an opportunity for some specific private deployments wherein you actually do have the ability of, uh, you know, it's a best effort kind of a server but if you can actually get by with it, so be it. Especially in indoor deployments, there is a possibility of doing that. When you go to outdoor deployments, it gets a little tricky because if you have to defer all the time, then you have to build a certain kind of a service model around it and you can certainly have essential services being a part of it. But in a pure indoor deployment, it might be possible to get away with it. And so based on what you described, it sounds like you think that there's a life for DSS five, 10 years down the road because it's still going to be there is kind of a coverage layer, maybe less needed. And then as you convert more stuff to just 5G only spectrum. I mean, the best way to look at DSS is LTE is not going anywhere in the near future. So for the foreseeable future, you're going to see coexistence of LTE devices. Maybe not in smartphones, maybe three, four years down the road, 90% of the smartphones happen to be just 5G. And maybe there's still a thin sliver of 4G smartphones, which are leftovers from what used to be. But there are so many other kinds of devices that are out there. Uh, You might have an instance wherein you have vehicles on the road which are actually using LTE connectivity because these vehicles were sold maybe five, six years before. Uh, You might have CATM and narrowband IoT gas meters and water meters that are running out there. So there are lots of, there is a base of devices that continue to use LTE. At the same time, you want to make sure that... some of them actually don't use a whole lot of bandwidth, especially these watt meter, water meters and gas meters. Uh, the amount of data rates needed for them is very small. That's a perfect example of, okay, let them be there. That's okay. They don't need to do anything, but use that channel, the specific channel where they're deployed in DSS and use the rest of that spectrum for 5G uses. Got it. Um, so just to go back to some, one other thing that, so do you think that DSS should not be deployed on low band or is it just you're not getting the same type of benefits on the lower band? No, actually we are absolutely advocating for DSS to be deployed in low bands. Uh, But keep in mind that that the the reason for that is not to get additional peak rates in the low band. The reason for that is to have that foundation so that you do the transition to standalone mode. Got it. So um, as I'm probably sure you heard, Neville Ray made some comments about maybe some capacity loss when you deploy DSS. Verizon downplayed his comments and, and I think we're saying like, yes, there is some loss in overall capacity when you deploy um, DSS on the same spectrum. It sounded like maybe you were referring to that earlier in terms of, you know, when you're operating in the 5G, you have to look at certain channels to make sure like, so can you just kind of walk through, you know, what are some of the inefficiencies um, that offset some of the benefits that, we, that we've already talked about in terms of DSS, if any? 
so the typically when people talk of actually we don't believe that uh, you know there are uh, significant uh, uh, inefficiencies that warrant you to take a second look at the situation the i don't think anyone that, suggested that but they were yeah. just saying it's it factors into the decision of their overall capacity fair enough i i think that uh, that's fair enough uh, the, the reason why people talk about inefficiency to begin with is uh if the channel is 100% LTE only, then you have the common channels of LTE, which means these are channels that are transmitted even if there are no users in the system. Correct. Even if there are no users, you have to send it and then you kind of build on top of it. And the 4G users get to use those channels. Here's the interesting part. Let's say that you just have one 4G user and you have like 99 5G users in the channel, just as an example. Just for that one user, you still have to send those uh, common signals no matter what. If you were to compare that situation against if all 100 users were 5G, you wouldn't have bothered with those common signals. So yes, there is inefficiency because of that, because just for that one user, you have to do something. The truth is it's never really that stark. And those common signals, the overhead is not gigantic. By the way, it's a bad idea to have common signals with a gigantic overhead. It's a small overhead. But it is something that you pay. It's a fixed price that you pay in the beginning. It's not too bad. From our perspective, the efficiency loss is uh, within a certain manageable limits. But then what you get out of that is this transition to SMO. So from our perspective, I can see why some people do talk about inefficiency losses. But truth be told, I don't see so that anyone, have you ever sized that? Because everyone, like the operators kind of use just terms. <laughs> In the old days, Motorola would say a term, there was a definition of the percentage that actually meant. So what what is the... We have, we've done some analysis in that space and it's a function of exactly what's the sum total bandwidth in itself. So the actual mm-hmm. overhead losses actually come down by the time you get to 10 megahertz or 20 megahertz. If it's five megahertz, then it goes up and a is little that, bit if, more. Does that mean if it's contiguous, meaning that does that overhead exist per band aggregated? Like, so if I had whatever, 30, 40 megahertz aggregated, then obviously my percentage loss is small. But if I had five, it's big. But what if I had five here, five here, and five here? Yeah, it's an interesting point. So by the way, so uh, if it's if it's non-contiguous, let's say that you have five here and five here yep. and this way, and there is a gap over here, then you have a certain percentage loss here, and then you have a certain percentage Got loss it. over here. Okay. If these were contiguous, this is where it gets interesting. In LTE, what we had done is, even though it's five megahertz, we ended up using only 90% of the bandwidth. So we don't actually use the entire five megahertz. We only use 4.5 megahertz of the five megahertz. And then we have 250 kilohertz each on both sides as guard band. Yep. Now, when you put these two bands together, as you can see in the mid portion the here, band, yeah. you don't you don't get it. So you can actually recover that efficiency loss over there. So if it tends to be contiguous, actually you, you might get some better efficiency out of it. So right. the, the, there's no one single answer over there. Right. So in this case, like if I look at T-Mobile in the 600 band, they've got five megahertz channel of LTE running right next to a 5G, five megahertz, 5G NR. Your point is that like if you ran DSS across it, maybe you're saving from You could that. do a few things. Exactly. Yeah. You could do a few things there. Yeah. So Ericsson's talked about launching Q1. Obviously, the world is different, but I don't think anyone's talked about engineers not being able to go out and do their jobs. At least that's what we've heard from the tower companies. So what? it's March 24th. Which, what is the market? Unfortunately, I might not be able to travel to it now. <laughs> um, which markets is, is, is this? Can it be launched market by market where Ericsson has this functional or does it have to be wait do you have to wait for all i the- think pretty much most of the field trials and all the kicking the tires and making sure things work uh, a lot of that work has already been completed 
uh, it's now up to the operators to say, okay, in these markets, I'm going to light it up in this phase. So there's a lot of other, uh, there's probably non-technical reasons at this point in time to say this is the time at which we are going to start lighting up uh, DSS. Uh, but uh, from an engineering standpoint, uh, there are no showstoppers. In fact, things have come along very smoothly uh, with uh, multiple infra vendors. So some of the kind of commentary that vendors other than Ericsson were having some issues and I, look stated deadlines beyond Ericsson seem to be longer term than than Ericsson. So, what is it with those vendors compared to Ericsson that um, that provide well, a difference of when they're going to be ready? I think uh, uh, you know, dating back to September of last year, we've uh, Ericsson and us, we've been kind of pioneering this feature and making sure this happens. So, it just so happens that our overall progress with Ericsson was much further along. But we do, you know, we are working with all the other infra vendors and things have come along quite well with them as well. And every operator has their own decisions to make as to do I light it up on a market by market basis or do I do that on a nationwide basis once I make sure that all the vendors are in place. That's really up to the operators. That's so what it's I up meant to the by operator the in terms of the market by market decision. So if Ericsson's ready yeah. to go and the operator says we're going to go with Ericsson only, that's, that's going to be, if it were you, would you be going, would you be waiting for all of the all of the, the the network vendors to be ready to upgrade in their their form of the network or their it's their usually they own yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's usually not uh, our decision over there typically when we talk in terms of our commercial readiness we make sure that we've done it with a threshold number <laughs> no, i'm saying if you were the cto right? of the operator what would would you be waiting for everyone or would you would you go market by market I don't know. It's my personal opinion at this point, but I'd be, uh, you know, I'm all for 5G as soon as possible. So <laughs> I'd right. say, let's just do this. But uh, I can are there, understand are there, that. Are there, there technical are considerations on why they would, I guess it's like if I'm, if I'm an, an operator, Verizon, that wants to launch nationally, you can't launch nationally if, if there's like a market that doesn't have Ericsson and then they can't, the phones in that market aren't going to light up with 5G, right? So that's probably the, the consideration that they have. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, it, as I said, these are probably non-technical considerations at this point. Uh, and again, you would anticipate it would make sense to, to, and they have the ability to aggregate as many of these blocks, whether it's mid AWS, PCS, low band. So when they, when they use this DSS, it's going across all of the bands. Well, it'll start off with one carrier. I mean, that's like first making sure that things actually work with one carrier in a stable manner and then start gradually riding up on top of it. When you do it with one carrier, by the way, you can still do that with non-standalone mode. That way, so imagine that you have five LTE carriers today and you have one 5G carrier. Your first step could be, okay, instead of five LTE carriers, I do four LTE carriers. I take one of those guys and make it into a 5G DSS carrier. And then I have yep. another 5G carrier over here as well. That's like first step just to make sure we didn't break anything. And then you gradually start adding more on top of it. This would be a natural cadence of the so overall So when, when do you think production. that all of the vendors will kind of be up to speed so that operators can deploy this nationwide? Uh, all the, as I said, the lot of the uh, lab testing as we've done with them, it's in a pretty good shape and field trials are going on in different places. I mean, in my but experience of course, we did in watching some... this stuff as an outsider and not an engineer is that when someone talks about lab testing, be ready, being ready, it means it's like nine months until it's actually in the network though. No. Okay. So these days, uh, you know, the thing is that everything has been going on in parallel. Uh, and so what it means is that it's not like you sequentially wait for lab testing to be completed and then you go into the field. Uh, it's on a feature by feature basis. You start lab testing a couple of weeks later, you go into the field and light up a call first, and then you start doing this in parallel. Uh, the level of maturity, the field testing maturity is really to make sure that things that, you know, there's always that last 5% 
of the problems, you want to make sure that you address them in the field as much as possible. Uh, but as I said, I think the level of maturity on DSS across all the vendors is coming up quite rapidly. In fact, uh, that's why I said that, you know, it's uh, when do uh, uh, operators actually light up? Uh, I think uh, it's really a question for them. And it's not for me. <laughs> Okay. Um, I only have one or two more questions, but again, just as a reminder for any of the attendees, you can either toss a question into the Zoom webinar chat, you can email me, or you can hit your raise hand, and I'll see it, and then you can actually come online um, with Durga to ask him a question directly. So feel free to do that if you wish. If not, no biggie. Um, so on, finally, just on like uplink type stuff. So mm -hmm. with everything that's happened, obviously the need for what we're doing now and and uplink becomes an issue. I mean, I've seen kind of recently some incremental special deployments where the downlink speed goes up, but uplink um, is kind of still not great. So what's the status of when Cairo aggregation hits uplink? Do you need to allocate specific uplink spectrum to the 5G TDD bands to help them in terms of performance as well as, um, you know, speeds in terms of performance? So because in, in TDD bands, I mean, you don't actually allocate more spectrum. It's a matter of allocating more time slots. So typically, you uh, you know, if I, I'll take an example. Uh, in fact, uh, maybe I'll give an anecdotal, you know, things that uh, from our Qualcomm colleagues who are based in uh, in China. And, and as we discuss with them, there's something very interesting. Just based upon the video conferencing that we're doing here right now, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, so typically in a TDD system, you have 100 megahertz. And what you do is you use a threes to one configuration. That means three out of four time slots you allocate to downlink. And so you get one fourth of uh, 100 megahertz, one fourth of the time, 100 megahertz. Uh, uh, in a very loose language, that is the equivalent of you having 25 megahertz in the uplink constantly with you which is a pretty high data rate, by the way. It actually goes up beyond 100 to 150 megabits per second. Pretty good, actually. And one thing that has come up is, uh, with the current set of circumstances where you have a lot of people working from home or working remotely, not necessarily uh, 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 from office. In fact, usage of, you know, we always talked of video as the killer app. Actually, what is emerging is that video conferencing has become a kind of a, a, an application that's gaining a lot of uh, you know, traction in these just last one month or so. More yes. and more people are actually using just their devices. I have a 5G device in China. I'm going to use it in my apartment and I'm going to actually start using that the whole day long. The best part is most of these devices came in with uh, almost unlimited data plans. You don't have to worry about that part as well. So it's quite remarkable how things have actually come up. Uh, and uh, so it remains to be seen whether this trend continues or not. But, uh, you know, quite a few of us were fascinated by the new trend with video conferencing, especially like this. But I envision myself, again, getting back to the wireless question. I'm sitting there doing a speed test. The carrier is aggregating, the, you know, the 40 megahertz of AWS with another 20 of 600. So I'm getting all this. And then my uplink when I just on a speed test alone, which is getting like whatever 20, I'm assuming I'm only using one of that. So why are they not aggregating? Like what's going to have to happen? Is that, is the first of all, is that, does Qualcomm have that technology available? Yes. What's the timeline in terms of deployments? Is that going to require any additional um, different chips in phones, different hardware? Like what, what's it going to take to get 
carrier aggregation on the uplink side? So we do support carrier aggregation on the uplink. I mean, even with LTE, it's just that, uh, you know, there are reasons why in some places it has taken traction and some places it has not. But Where has it taken take- traction? Actually, it's come up in other parts of the world, uh, you know, two carrier aggregation. But typically, the the demand for having a much, even if you take one 20 megahertz carrier, for instance, you're already running, you know, your peak rate is already about 75 megabits per second, which is good enough. I mean, it's not, of course, something that you want for, uh, let's say, live streaming in the uplink and so on. But for the applications that were there in the 4G era, actually, it was seen deemed to be good enough. But what's happened now is at least in the in the premium tier and in the high tier of the devices, when we have this uh, NSA mode 5G uh, 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 solutions available, then you have one fourth of that 100 megahertz of the spectrum, which is yet another gigantic boost. And so now you have a situation wherein not only do you have maybe one carrier on LT, but you have another carrier, 100 megahertz carrier on 5G but you use it one fourth of the time, but that's the equivalent of you transmitting simultaneously on two carriers. That's what happens today. If you buy a device which is capable of non-standalone mode, remember you're simultaneously connected to 4G and 5G, which means on the uplink, you're simultaneously transmitting to 4G and 5G as well. So your uplink data rates actually took a gigantic boost. Right, when we get to TDD and 5G, I'm just looking in the the near term um, in terms of, okay, that's, with Sprint, you can already see that with the 2.6 gigahertz in the US because they had about 60 megahertz and you take like, you know, one fourth of that. Actually, it's a pretty substantial chunk. You go to Europe and, and uh, China and Korea uh, and Japan. Yeah, I'm not worried about yeah, T-Mobile with the Sprint spectrum. I'm more worried about, you know, kind of what the bridge is for AT&T yeah. and Verizon until they can get to C-band or maybe a more functional millimeter wave. So why don't we... Understand. Since we have two minutes left, just final question in terms of um, thoughts on millimeter wave spectrum in terms of, you know, the initial tests have, have at least in the initial deployments, haven't yielded great um, coverage areas. Where are we in a year or two from now in terms of, because we keep hearing from the operators, oh, the next software upload, the next software upload. So what should we expect from a small cell um, millimeter wave deployed in terms of a typical radius that, that we're going to get to when all of the, obviously it's always improving, <laughs> um, but when you get to a point um, where they've kind of reached a sweet spot uh, in, in their software upgrades to make millimeter wave work. I think what you're seeing right now is that, you know, last year the questions was, will the technology even work? Uh, does it work in a smartphone? And uh, and uh, are you serious? Can I actually hold it in my hand and then walk around and still make it work? I'm glad the questions now are more about, can I get more of it? And how soon can I get it? And how fast can I get it in different places? So what I'm seeing from our perspective is uh, most operators are thinking of, uh, okay, we we they leverage the existing uh, uh, wherever they could in terms of the existing 4G small cell footprint, they added 5G millimeter wave on top of it. It's clearly not sufficient that they understand that and they have their own plans. But you're also beginning to see uh, a different way of looking at the topology wherein more penetration of millimeter wave into indoor deployments, into malls and campuses and stadiums and different hotspots. Uh, and, and when you want to get into that space, there you need small cell form factor. By sure. the way, that's, that's, a a different, place- that's a different story than what was told a year or two ago by the operators. And frankly, it can be, it can be dealt with with CBRS spectrum, which is also an indoor spectrum, right? Right. But, but 
that that is true but it's just that they have millimeter wave solutions today but what operators are looking at is a more holistic uh, way of looking at it really okay. the question is more for i think it depends upon each individual operator how they're doing it but interesting part is if you take a look at the recently concluded auction on millimeter wave once again you see gigantic amounts of millimeter wave spectrum that got auctioned and then got gobbled up by uh, all the different carriers yep. in the us uh, it's quite something actually okay one last question i know i'm beyond time but the massive MIMO you referenced, pick a time frame, five, 10 years from now, are we going to see massive MIMO antennas on every macro tower across the, across the U.S. in order to better enable the, whether it's 5G or, or mid-band spectrum? I think for the mid-band spectrum, that is something that every operator is definitely thinking about. Whether it pans out or not is a different story, but that's the best way of actually deploying the mid-band spectrum. It's every a macro story. tower or like 80% or... I mean, what are we going to ultimately get to? I would say, I would hope that it is north of a reasonable, you know, fraction over there. I don't know whether it'll ever be 100%, but uh, it's the best way of actually deploying. The massive MIMO uh, technology is ideally suited for these mid-band uh, and above uh, uh, with the antenna panel. So that's the thinking, and that's the that's the way that most operators are thinking of. Now, in what time frame will they get to that 100%? No idea. I mean, that's I think the really technology, the I think there was some issue with getting it available in the mid-man, but apparently it's available now and they're going to no, start it's, it's available now. Yeah, it's available now. It's certainly available, yeah. Durga, Mauricio, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, stay safe and quarantined, I guess. You too. Bye, <laughs> guys. Thank you. All right, bye then. Thank you.